Hello, everybody. I'm Jamal Adams. And I'm Nate Sessoms. And this is Just Conversations with Jamal and Nate. Welcome back, and thanks for joining us. For those of you who are new to the space, Just Conversations is a podcast that's positioned at the nexus of faith and matters pertaining to race, justice, and Catholic education. We highlight historical and current happenings in the realm of diversity, equity, inclusion, and anti-racism, while focusing on solutions, systems change, and the amplification of voices working to create a more just and egalitarian society for all. Each episode will engage in authentic yet provocative dialogue seasoned with critical perspectives, scholarship, and life experiences. We also conduct interviews and moderate panel discussions featuring campus and community leaders, interrogate issues related to mission and identity, and answer live questions from listeners. Ultimately, we aim to increase the level of awareness while normalizing conversations on all forms of marginalization and oppression. We ascribe to the idea that there's room for everyone in the movement. So, no matter how much you know or don't know, we invite you to engage with us. After all, these are just conversations. Okay, we didn't do this in the pilot episode, but we have to kick off this episode the right way. And uh, it's always appropriate to celebrate Black excellence. So, I want to give you, Brother Jamal, major props on your new position as principal at LaSalle High School in Pasadena. Congrats for those who may not know, Jamal spent the last 16 years as, uh, and I always used to joke with Jamal because he had about 17 titles. And, uh, but to me, and and I think to a lot of other people, he was all things uh, representing Loyola. So the face of Loyola, certainly, I believe in the black community across Los Angeles and in a lot of other spaces, but an amazing presence at that school for so long. So I'm sure he's sorely missed. But uh, Jamal, I want to turn it over to you. Congratulations, brother. I'm so happy for you. Thank you, Nate. It is uh, with great honor that I walk into this new role as a principal at LaSalle, but I I would be uh, remiss if I didn't say that it was very hard to leave my Jesuit roots and so much of my formation as a young man, as an adult, um, both as a student at Loyola High School and then coming back um, in my career and and having a chance to teach and coach and be an administrator and and help launch our diversity, equity, inclusions efforts at Loyola. All those things form me um, in a way that brings me here today. And it really makes it's really exciting now coming to a new community, being wide eyed and, and open minded to to new thoughts and issues, new challenges. Uh, in a real way, I am, I'm learning every day. And to be honest with you, it, it's amazing. It's like uh, uh, my brain and different parts of my faith, my spirituality, my intelligence are being used every day. And uh, I'm excited. It doesn't stop the work, right? The diversity work keeps on coming. And as I said, I'm always so happy to be in this space uh, with you as a thought partner, um, partnering with the Ignatius Solidarity Network to bring this forward. And so uh, I can't wait to get going. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, you know, we're not going to let you get too far away. So don't, uh, don't, 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 you know, don't, don't act like you're running away. <laughs> Pull you back no, in. Never, yeah. never. No, this is okay. home. This yes, is sir. Home. Absolutely. Um, so turning the page a little bit, it's been 15 months since, uh, since George Floyd was murdered in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, which launched us into this most recent chapter of the Russia Reckoning. Al Jamal doesn't seem like it's been, maybe it's because of the pandemic. It, it doesn't seem like it's been that long. But for those who don't know, uh, when we speak about the racial reckoning, uh, we don't consider it a new phenomenon. We don't consider it a new period in time. So we can argue that there have been different chapters of the racial reckoning. And so we could say the first chapter of the racial reckoning took place with the genocide of indigenous people when the first settlers came to North America. We can talk about another chapter taking place in 1619 
with the first documented arrival of enslaved Africans at what we would then say was Jamestown, but now we know it's Hampton, Virginia. We can talk about uh, the Reconstruction era, post-Civil War, post-1865, where we had Black folk being gunned down in broad daylight as a result of uprisings in uh, cities like Memphis and New Orleans. We can obviously talk about the 1950s and 60s with the Civil Rights Movement. And so the most recent chapter of the racial reckoning, we can say, was catalyzed by the murders of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and most certainly George Floyd. So since that time, uh, we've seen we've seen some changes. We've seen people, generally speaking, pledging to do better and be better. We've seen the removal of Confederate monuments, which for sure in the Black community stand as symbols of terror, but I would argue that's for every community if we're looking at it the right way. Uh, we've seen companies and institutions and, and entities of all sizes working to become anti-racist. But Jamal, the question that you and I have talked about, and I mean, you know, we've talked about this back and forth, is do people really understand, I mean, people are moving forward, but do they, do they really understand the moment and the movement? You know, like the post-George Floyd era is and will continue to be defined by the demand for greater levels of truth, greater levels of transparency, accountability, and ultimately human dignity. Can't agree more. You know, these two ideas, the moment and the movement and the way that we've we've discussed it really, I think, catalyze what is in front of us. Right. That moment uh, really tries to capture uh, a bit uh, about the awakening, the opening of eyes um, that was generated by the, the murder of George Floyd and the way that because we were so still because of the pandemic, how we all had to um um, intake it and interpret it, and then what ultimately did it it, it move in us, and then, and then the movement, the movement really kind of catalyzes the people moving forward and 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 being engaged or not engaged, and the whole wrestling with their own humanity in this space um, that was filled with uh, with great angst and trepidation, but also a, a fireball of energy that wanted to move forward. So, so when we talk about the various ways that businesses and corporations and other entities are dealing with these challenges, the question really becomes is, what does this mean for Catholic education? What role does faith play in helping us understand the moment as well as understand the movement? And how can we as individuals be charged by the moment? What do institutions, uh, what do our institutions uh, need to do to respond to and hopefully become part of that movement that ultimately leads us, right, that the end of all of this work is liberation for all? Very well said, brother. I think um, you posed some very good questions that we all need to be thinking about. For those of us that our hearts lie in the realm of Catholic education, I was speaking to someone the other day and they were saying, you know, it seems like a lot of our, our institutions, uh, educational institutions are experiencing an identity crisis, right? Where there are some basic tenets of Catholic education that we adhere to, that we aspire to, that we recite on a regular basis. And the moment challenges us to actually demonstrate that we know those, that we are going to live by them, that we are going to educate our young people with them in mind. You know, how do we demonstrate care personalis? How do we become persons for and with others? How do we engage in understanding, but also demonstrating the modest, right? These are the kind of things that we need to be thinking about. In terms of our individual walks in life, and how we've been changed as individuals, we can certainly look at the role that faith plays in all of this work. We know what faith is. We know how we, as believers, talk about Amen. faith, right? If, if you have faith the size of Amen. a mustard seed, um, 
faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. But how do we demonstrate our faith? How do we step forward and engage when we feel that calling, right? To actually be the people that we said we'd be. I think that's the challenge. And so the stage is set. There's a lot of work to be done, but there's no better time to engage in that work. I think you raised some great questions. Thank you, Nate, for always doing a great job setting the table. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the moment and the movement. Where are we and where are we going? Did you know the Ignatian Solidarity Network holds the largest annual Catholic social justice conference in the country each year in Washington, D.C.? In 2021, the Ignatian Family Teaching is not one, but two conferences, complete with unique speaker lineups, networking opportunities, and opportunities to engage in actions for justice. Join virtually October 16th, or in person in Washington, D.C. from November 6th to the 8th, or both. No matter how you join, you'll imagine a path forward with the Ignatian family as we put faith into action to build a more just world. Learn more and register today at ignatiansolidarity.net slash IFTJ. Welcome back. Today we're talking about the murder of George Floyd and its continued relevance, the moment and the movement that it catalyzed. I think one of the things that really struck me in our last part, um, Nate, you talked about the idea uh, of being moved to action. And I think um, what we are wrestling with in our institutions, our Catholic institutions, is how do we turn our beautiful words that we have in our mission statements, our vision statements, our core principles, how do we live into those values, right? When we speak about the moment, we're speaking about the ways that each of us has been changed. When you see the video, the eight minutes and 46 seconds during which George Floyd was murdered in broad daylight that you can't unsee, what does it motivate us to do? Yeah, I think, and again, a topic you and I have thrown back and forth and, and dialogued about for hours at a time. I think the context, the specific context of George Floyd's murder, right? We're in the middle of the pandemic. People are fearful of dying. People are losing their jobs. People are isolated. We have four years of the Trump uh, administration, which is ultimately, from a very broad perspective, characterized by people of color and historically marginalized and oppressed populations feeling devalued and unseen. And on the other hand, you have white supremacists feeling uh, empowered and, and like they can say anything they want at any time they want and it's going to be excused or it's going to be OK. I think the context uh, long before George Floyd was murdered, people were already in a negative place. Right. I mean, I think people were already in a space where, you know, like a lot of times in history, it's not necessarily a particular event. It's all of the context around us that lead the event to be the time, the moment where the match is dropped in the gasoline and the explosion takes place. Right. I think on the other side, when we juxtapose um, the awakening that happened, right, we have folks talking about this is new to me, this forming of their new conscious, where on the other side of that coin, you have people of color who have been the victims of militarization, mm -hmm. police militarization, mm -hmm. brutality in their communities, who have found this to be kind of a normal I hate to say it, a normalized way of living, mm -hmm. um, you know, saying to themselves, where have y'all been? Exactly. And what have you been looking at? That friction between this awakening versus like, this ain't nothing new. Right. I think also brings us to to this really uh, difficult yep. space, particularly yep. in our institutions. Absolutely. No, very well said. I, I, I think it, it exacerbates matters for sure, because there are often conversations that happen, I'm certain, within the communities of color, I would venture to estimate, and this is not to generalize, 
but in the black community for sure, where there are certain assumptions that are made that this is sort of this is how the police are thinking. This is how the police see us. You know, this is how my resume will be viewed if th- if this name is at the top of it or things like that. And when people say, "Hey, uh, I can't believe that happened in this country," it leaves you feeling like, <laughs> what, "What planet have you been living on?" Like, like this is for you know for us, this is the way we see the world. Uh, we assume that these things happen, right? I can remember us talking right after <laughs> right. Uh, George Floyd was murdered, and we were talking about this, and we were saying, um, you know, once one one part of the population is saying. I can't believe this happened. And the rest of us, Jamal, if you remember this, we were like, well, we happen to get this one on tape. You know, it, it's so commonplace. In fact, we, 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 you and I have talked and we think, you know, this probably happens pretty regularly. It's just that this time it's on tape. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and what does that mean? I think, you know, speaking personally, and, and I remember thinking about this during the trial of Derek Chauvin, when they did the still shot of him looking at the the young girl with with the cell phone and he's just looking into the camera like what are you gonna do i'm almost daring you to stop him the video is hard to watch but that was chilling because you're helpless i mean what 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 was she gonna do what were the bystanders gonna do and i think there's a lot of symbolism in in the moment with the bystanders see them during the trial they're emotionally shaken they're scarred by that experience you know um but, you know, the other side of it is George Floyd moments happen every day. The question is, do we see the moment when it takes place? And are we willing to act and step out and stand on faith and say something or do something? And so as we talk about the moment and moving into the movement, that's also part of it is, to your point, Jamal, what, what are we motivated to do? Right. You don't necessarily need a tragic uh, and very heinous act like the murder of George Floyd to be motivated to move forward and be engaged in the movement toward a more just and equitable society. George Floyd moments happen every day. They may not be the lead on CNN, but people are dehumanized and belittled on a regular basis in society, in their workplace, in their homes. You know, when we think about the officers uh, who assisted Derek Chauvin in uh, committing this heinous act, you and I, Jamal, talk a lot about understanding who you are. Right. And understanding how to make good decisions. Right. That's a prime example to me of how many of us fail to question authority figures and simply follow. But there has to be something within you that says, you know, this is not who I am. Even if it means I'm going to go against the grain, I need to do what I need to do. And sometimes that means fighting against your fears. And sometimes that means understanding the power of the word no and speaking up and demonstrating a different type of leadership. So I think that's really important. Yeah. You know, I think the other thing that when you start to talk that gets me thinking is that the moment uh, challenged our lexicon. It challenged us to think about the language that we use. And we think about protesters versus rioters. Mm-hmm. We think of the various ways and shades and, and ways in which the world looked at George Floyd. Mm-hmm. Uh, he went from, at one point, counterfeiter to loving father, the way that we use words, even the argument about Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter versus other movements like Blue Lives Matter, and what I think was an explosion Mm -hmm. beyond, Mm -hmm. again, the moment and the emotions and what we saw, the rawness, the perspectives, that perspective of like, I haven't never, you know, this is brand new to me versus 
this is seems like an everyday occurrence, depending on your lived experience and your perspective was also the way that we use language. I think what is uh, really evident in the social media age um, that we all are living in, as we still try to reckon with how we live together as human beings, right? How we understand the various complexities of our human identities is that we've got to find ways to talk about language in a way that allows us to be talking about the same thing. You know, when I think about, again, uh, what has made uh, for breakdowns in the moment. A group of people may get together. We all might be talking about the idea of the murder of George Floyd. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. prior to the conviction of Chauvin, right, there was even just how do you explain that event was the killing, the murder, the the, the suffocation, right? The modern day lynching, right? right? And, and, and the truth of the matter is, I think it would be Pollyannish to admit that or to say that not choosing the right words, you know, oftentimes can cause these conversations to stop. Um, and oftentimes when those conversations stop, we continue to kind of like lift up the status quo. And I know you and I are always talking about how do we help people sit in this discomfort? And I'm hoping that again, in our space and in our podcast, we get a chance to help folks do that. For sure. Um, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think you started off talking about the protests and the protesters. Um, I've always thought it was really interesting the way we view uh, protests, to your point, Jamal, riot, riots, uprisings, like, you know, how are we describing the actions of individuals who uh, don't see themselves being fairly represented in society or don't believe that their needs are being met? I, I've always felt like uh, protests, you know, people don't go to bed at night and in their daily thoughts go, yeah, by the way, next Tuesday, we're going to just go and protest. Like, you know, you protest as a last act. You protest because you are in a space where no one is hearing me. Think about my times working with students. Typically, demands are viewed negatively by institutions. You end up in a space where you're receiving demands when students have been saying something for quite some time, but obviously don't feel listened to. So this is an opportunity for institutions to listen. And the sooner you get clarity and you understand the truth, I would think that's better than students not saying anything and you have no idea what's going on. But clearly, these are actions of the voiceless. And, and they symbolize our collective desire for a better society. The other part I'll I'll add in, Jamal, and we had this conversation as well. The protests around the murder of George Floyd took place in the middle of uh, the pandemic. And so remember, people were afraid and going, oh, man, this is going to be super spreader. People are going to be out without masks on. People are going to be, man, the rates are going to go even higher. The hospitals are overflowing. They don't have enough beds and ventilators. I mean, people were extremely fearful. But it was interesting. People were protesting all over the world. And while rates were increasing, it didn't seem like the protests made the rates increase uh, exponentially. I think it demonstrated that people, we were all, we're all afraid of COVID. We all had fears. But I think we're more afraid of living in a society where a Black man can be asphyxiated and dehumanized in broad daylight in the middle of the street. You know, we're more afraid of that, which I was really proud of. I was really proud that people came together and stood up and spoke up. For justice and liberation in the name of George Floyd. And then, of course, there's that other side that says, well, you know, this is not the country we live in, or is it? Right. Is it? And I think that's where people are people are particularly challenged. And I think that uh, ties a really good bow on the idea of the moment being a catalyst for the movement. So with that being said, we are going to take another quick break. And when we return, we are going to dive into the movement. For 21 days, the Ignatian Solidarity Network is challenging you to enter into the complex work of understanding the realities of racial injustice and anti-blackness in the U.S. 
The 21-Day Ignatian Racial Equity Challenge is designed for all participants, regardless of race, ethnicity, prior anti-racism work, age, or background, and will include opportunities to learn, pray, and act on different themes of racial equity. Additionally, specific resources will be provided for white people who benefit from and perpetuate racist systems in our society, both intentionally and unintentionally. Sign up today to begin receiving the daily emails at igsol.net forward slash 21 challenge. Welcome back. Before we get talking about the movement, just a reminder, we want to hear from you, the listeners. You can send your thoughts and questions to justconversations at ignatiansolidarity.net. One more time, please send all thoughts and questions to justconversations at ignatiansolidarity.net. So back to you, Nate. We've talked about the moment, how it uh, inflamed hearts and minds and thoughts around the world. It got people talking on social media and, as you said, out in the streets, masked, you know, uh, our, as you said, the fear of living in, a, in an unjust world seemed to trump the fear of COVID-19 for the better part of a number of weeks as people took to the streets. So how would you help paint the picture of what is the movement? Uh, the movement's one of, is, you know, I, I'm going to say it's one of mine. It's one of our favorite topics to talk about the changes happening in society. I think, you know, we can see the movement playing out on a, on a f- couple of different scales for sure. In terms of you know, what are we being challenged to do as individuals? Well, first and foremost, I think we're being called to heighten our levels of awareness. It's important for people to be cognizant and understand what they're saying, to whom they're saying it, what the context is, to understand some things about communities. Are people in pain? Is there something going on? And I need to do a better job of being an advocate rather than being a spokesperson in this moment. I think one of the things we've seen is that people are being held accountable in a lot of different ways. And while one response to that is fear, the better response is to be cognizant, to be aware. We've talked a lot about people needing to educate themselves. There are, there are all kinds of reading lists and, you know, they can always, Jamal, tune into Just Conversations and learn a lot about, you know, what we need to be talking about and what we need to be thinking about. But I just think People have to decolonize their minds, and we'll be talking about what it means to decolonize and question the things that people may have always believed. And then I think for institutions, it really gets interesting. You know, with respect to Catholic uh, education, you know, the question on the table, I believe, is are you going to be accountable to your mission? You know, do you understand who you are? Yep, yep. Because you can't tell me one thing and expect me to memorize it and recite it, yet everything that we see. Um, in terms of actions, in terms of programming, in terms of um, statements to students and alumni and families don't quite match up. Uh, there's no dodging. There's no dancing around these issues now. You will be held accountable. One of the things I've also seen, Jamal, is, and it's particularly uh, hurtful, is institutions that say they're, they want to engage in anti-racism. But in doing so, they basically engage in anti-Black anti-Latinx, anti-Asian, anti-LGBT, racism and oppression, right? And we see this all the time. We see organizations say, hey, we're going to be anti-racist. And that's why we're going to make sure that the black guy is the guy who talks about racism all the time. You just engage in anti-black racism. And so there are ways to think about 
how we engage with this movement uh, on the institutional side. Presidents and, and provosts and CEOs are being called to a new type of leadership uh, to do a much better job of listening, listening attentively, understanding uh, where their employees or staff members or students uh, or managers, their health and vitality. People are speaking up, uh, standing up and showing up like never before. And I think that if we can sustain that, and I think that's one of the major questions is once we come out of this pandemic and, and people resume their normal lives, how do, how do we keep the movement going? How do we intentionally make time or it becomes a part of our daily lives to question institutions, to challenge institutions, to make sure that, that they are living up to their mission? So I, I, to me, that encapsulates the, move, the movement. There's a lot more that I, I, I could say, but I, I, I want to get you in here, brother. So what do you think? Yeah, no, nah, I think that's amazing. I love what you said, and and I'll I'll uh, I'll add my two cents by by saying that the other reason why I think that we know that this was a movement and a powerful one is that a very vibrant counter has been created as well. Right, we are seeing our schools, our Jesuit schools, live in a moment in which, as we saw the Black Lives Matter statements, as we saw schools engage in anti-racism, as we saw schools scrambling to procure resources, as you said, reading lists and speakers, formation and training. You know, in 2021, we see the rollback of, at a, at a national level, we see laws being put in place about what can be taught in classes, right? We have seen a very loud chorus uh, that wants to denounce critical race theory, which I know we're going to spend some time in later in the podcast about, uh, but in a very real way, right? What we've seen is, and a response to the movement has been that those that oppose it have universalized everything and they've made everything in, in some respect critical race theory or, or anti-patriotic or or it's like reverse racism. They've universalized it, they've demonized it, and now we're, we're trying to legislate it out of uh out of consciousness. And so, as you said, I think the word I love to hang on from your last comment is, is sustainability. When we imagine this with our, our fearless leader, Chris Kerr, about an opportunity to continue to sustain and push it forward, to stay in the consciousness, um, my gut is we will have definitely some folks that support our work and we'll definitely have some folks yep. that don't. Our Absolutely. hope is to be engaged, to keep the engagement to be sustainable, and then ultimately get to really uh, changing not only hearts and minds, but systems and structures. Yes, so I'm going to pass it to you to talk a little bit about um, what's coming up next. Absolutely. Appreciate you. Um, so a lot of what we've been addressing today are, are really some of the basic core principles associated with anti-racism. Jamal and I had the honor and privilege of presenting on anti-racism last year at the teach-in. And so obviously a lot of our conversations are rooted in not only, you know, not just life, but, you know, how do we create a more just and equitable society? Uh, I, I think, uh, not that I need to speak for both of us, but I would say we see life through uh, anti-racist lenses. And so in our next episode, we're going to be exploring some of the basic tenets of anti-racism. A lot of people are throwing that word around. Obviously this summer, the buzzword or the buzz acronym has been CRT, or people are talking about critical race theory. But anti-racism and critical race theory are clearly very much related. And it's hard to engage in anti-racism when you don't really understand what it is, what it's calling you to do, what it's challenging you to do, and you don't understand its direct nature. So we're going to dive into that. I know some people, Jamal, were challenged when I said, we're going to engage in anti-racism, so let's hire the Black guy. 
And I know some of you are like, well, wait, like, wouldn't you hire the black guy? We got something for you coming up in the next episode. We're going to break all that down so you understand why I said what I said. As always, my brother, I can't wait. I always love uh, that conversation with you and I always take some nuggets away from that. So, so please join us next time. But thank you for joining us today for Just Conversations. Just one more quick reminder. We'd love to hear your ideas and thoughts and your reflections. Please take the time, send us a note at justconversations at ignatiansolidarity.net. Again, that's justconversations at ignatiansolidarity.net. Also, make sure to look us up to find us. We're on iTunes and Spotify and share the conversation with others in your life. Yes, sir. Find us. iTunes and Spotify. Yes, Share this conversation with others in your life engaged in diversity, equity, inclusion work and anti-racism work. We look forward to continuing to connect with you all on this journey. This is a place of love and growth and and our way of being persons for and with others. Peace and God bless. Peace.